Our Old Testament reading this morning is from Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. As we continue in the story of Exodus, of, of God's people who are enslaved in Egypt and trying to see what is God going to do about that. Before we read, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for this day, and we thank you for your word, which you have given to us. And Lord, we ask that you would help us this morning as we hear your word read and proclaimed. God, we pray that you would help us to hear it. We pray that you would help us to hear it and to take it to heart. God, we ask that you would uh, use your word to form us as your people. Lord, that as we see more clearly who you are, we would know better who we are too. Help us to know better what it means to live now as your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Says, now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and, count, and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. I forgot to mention, sorry, hang on a second. (laughs) This immediately follows the part where Pharaoh has given the order that every Hebrew boy that is born you must throw into the Nile. And so here they've just had a boy and are trying to not throw him into the Nile. Um, That's why the hiding for three months, etc. Anyway, but now, uh, yeah, she has... Uh, gotten a papyrus basket for him, coated it with tar and pitch, placed the child in it, and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. Turning then to our New Testament reading. This is Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 30. As Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi, on the way he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. This is the word of the Lord. Imagine you were living 2,000 years ago, and you were a part of the uh, Roman Empire, and you were experiencing all the glories that the Roman Empire had to offer. You experienced the technology of the day, the roads, 
the way that they could transport people and mail, the way that they had the aqueducts for transporting water, the way in which the whole empire seemed to be united for a great, great amount of space. It seemed that every which direction you went, it was still Rome. And so you're seeing this coming together of all these amazing things, and it's all under this uh, empire of Rome. Of course, it's not all good. There were certainly some hard things about the Roman Empire as well. Uh, There was, as much as it made a uh, way for life to go easier for some, it was also a culture of death in a lot of ways. Conquest by violence, destroying people who were unwanted, unappreciated, or who just complicated things. So there you are. You're in Rome. You're experiencing the good and the bad of this whole empire. And someone comes through town and they tell you about a Jewish guy from Galilee, one of the far-flung places in the Roman Empire. And this, um, this guy is apparently the Lord of everything the ruler of all. At least this is what he claimed. This is what his disciples, those who followed him, claimed about him. Although the Romans did kill him. And he died on a cross, was buried in a tomb, but three days later was raised to life again. And now people have gone everywhere throughout the Roman Empire and they are declaring that this Jesus who was crucified is alive and is the true king over everything. You have accepted that this is the case. You understand that he didn't just die, but he, because the Romans killed him, he died because he gave his life willingly for you. But now things are getting complicated. Because now as you try to follow Jesus, at times it puts you at odds with your neighbors and with the whole of the Roman Empire. You certainly don't feel like you can worship the Roman gods anymore. That doesn't seem right. And, uh, and there's an awful lot in your society that kind of revolves around that. And so now you're getting pressure. And now you've actually heard that the Romans have killed someone nearby just for being a Christian, just for identifying themselves as somebody who follows Jesus instead of who follows Caesar. This uh, is pretty much the case for those who originally received the letter of Revelation. And if you can imagine yourself in that position, I think you have a much better uh, chance of understanding what's going on in the book of Revelation than if you don't. So if we imagine ourselves in that position as someone who has accepted Jesus and yet is also um, thoroughly involved with and surrounded by this empire of Rome, and you're feeling the tension between the two, and not just tension, but now there's actual persecution that has begun, even to the point of death. 
And you start wondering and asking the question of yourself and your family, and you're asking the question, is it worth it? Is it worth it to follow Jesus when in this current kind of political climate and uh, way of life, things get awfully difficult? Is it worth it knowing that we are risking our lives to tell people about Jesus? That we are risking our lives to follow him instead of Caesar? Is it worth it? Jesus tells a parable about uh, the four types of soil. Remember this? It's like Matthew 13, Mark 4. Those might not be right. I think they are. <laughs> Where it talks about the seed that goes out and it's planted on four different kinds of soil. And it's on the path and the birds come and just eat it up, take it away. It's gone. And then there's other soil where there's uh, goes on the rocky places. And it looks like it's going to grow up. And it does for a little bit, but then it goes away. And then there's the seed that falls among the thorns. And it looks like it's going to come up for a little bit, then it doesn't. It goes away. And neither of them, neither of those first three, none of those, bear fruit. It's only in the fourth uh, soil, the good soil, where the seed goes down and then it uh, grows up and produces a crop. And Jesus talks about this parable as saying, you know, it's the word that goes out to people. And when the word goes out, some people receive it and they accept it, but they don't last and they don't bear fruit. And the, um, those two middle soils, the, the one is the, uh, the rocky place, the other is the thorny place. And the one, the rocky place, is those who, because of persecution, turn away. And so basically it's just, it's too hard. And they answer the question, is it worth it, by saying, no, it's not. It is too hard. It is too difficult. Things have gotten too rough. I'm out. Or then there's the thorny place. and says those because of the, um, the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth are out. And that's just the general getting distracted with everything else the world has to offer and believing that the world can provide for everything we need. Then we go, well, then guess we don't need this Jesus thing. I'm out. And so on the one hand, you have the pressures and the persecution and the hardships. Or on the other hand, you have the temptation towards just worldliness in general and all the world has to offer. And either way, there is the temptation to not stay faithful, to not stay true. And this is what people were facing uh, in the early days of Christianity. This is what people are facing today. And this is the, uh, where the message of Revelation comes in. This last book of the Bible that we talked about last week is this fitting conclusion to the whole story from Genesis to Revelation. Everything uh, that had come before, it's all leading up to this. And so I'm going to read the first three verses again. I didn't put those up here, but I'm going to go ahead and hear them again. This is how John begins the whole letter says, the revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it because the time is near. And then we'll continue 
with um, what we're going to look at specifically today. But keep this in mind as we go through Revelation. That uh, verse 3 where it said, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take heart what is written in it. That's what we're supposed to be doing. A lot of people take this whole book as though it is either a puzzle to be solved or an issue to fight about with other people. I don't know why, <laughs> but that's not what it says at all. That This is something that is for our benefit. It is for our good if we are those who hear it and take it to heart. If we let the word go down into the good soil of our hearts, then there is a blessing there, and that is what this, the purpose of this is. Okay, so we continue then. John, <laughs> sorry, Revelation 1, 4 through 8. This is a letter, so it starts out. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look. He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who was and who who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. We're going to have to stop it there because there is too much. (laughs) We will continue in the weeks to come as far as uh, what else this letter has to reveal to us. But in this section, I mean, hopefully you noticed, it is pretty dense in the way that he uses language where every word seems to be calling forth so much more. This is a lot of um, what poetry does. If you have, like, if you ever read good poetry, if you hear good song lyrics, that what makes good poetry good poetry is not because it rhymes. Bad poetry can still rhyme. What makes good poetry good poetry is when you can pack so much experience and emotion and everything into just such a few words. And so you hear those few words and you go, oh my goodness, there's so much. This is so rich. Um, But as we go through this, a lot of what it's calling on is things that have come previously in the Bible. It's kind of bringing all of it together so that we can see it more clearly. And um, a lot of people make the mistake of opening the book of Revelation and seeing all this stuff and going, I don't know what to make of this. Maybe I should turn on the news or check with the newspaper or whatever, and then see if I can find any connections, and that will explain this book to me. And that is actually a great way to make a mess of this whole book and really your life. So don't do that. Um, there is a definitely a place to see what's happening in modern times through the lens of Revelation. But that is an after-the-fact thing. That is not step one. Step one with this is, as I mentioned last week, Revelation is the 66th book of the Bible because it comes with 65 prerequisites. That it's a knowing the whole rest of the Bible that will help us to understand what's going on here. And what is going on here is it's bringing together of so many things. So, for example, we're just going to walk through some of this. When he says, John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, we will see in chapter 2 and 3 
these, the list of seven churches. And we get to read these letters within a letter um, to these seven churches. And yet, when he writes to each church, then he also says at the end of each one, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so there's a way in which he's writing to a single church and yet to the churches. And when it says uh, that there are seven churches, we go, well, what in the world, what is that about? Why seven churches? Is that just because those are the ones that he had on the mind? And Maybe. But we see the number seven used all throughout the book of Revelation with a particular meaning. And it's not just a meaning that John made up. It goes all the way back, tying us all the way back to the beginning. Do you remember when the first time we get a seven in the Bible is? Genesis chapter 1, right? And uh, I guess chapter, beginning of chapter 2, they really broke the chapters in the wrong spot on Genesis. But anyway, so in Genesis 1, you have in six days, God is creating everything and making a space for everything and putting everything in its place. And uh, that's you know, days 1 through 3, days 4 through 6. And then day 7, God rests. Why? Because it's complete. Creation, that, that act of creation is complete. And so this is, it becomes a number that then for the rest of the Bible keeps getting used to mean completion. And so, um, and like the whole thing. And so when John is writing to the seven churches, is he writing to seven churches? Yeah. But he's really writing to the whole church. In his day and in our day and every day before and after. So to the seven churches in the province of Asia, and then he says grace and peace. This is bringing together kind of a typical uh, Greek greeting and a typical Roman greeting, but seeing that Jesus is the one that is uh, that brings both grace and peace. It's a very fitting beginning to a letter, not just in Revelation, but we see this from Paul an awful lot. And it says it's grace and peace to you from him who is and who was, and who is to come. Present, past, future. He could have said the eternal one, but doesn't this really drive it home more? (laughs) The one who is, and who was, and who is to come. We'll see this again multiple times through the book. And from the seven spirits before his throne. The seven spirits before his throne. First of all, there's a throne. What does that indicate? king, right? Maybe we're talking about some sort of a kingdom with kingship and a a king who is on his throne. And the one who is on the throne is apparently the one who is and who was and who is to come. That's very different than uh, the leaders who are on thrones. Maybe they're the king right now, but there was a different one before and there'll be a different one later. Or maybe they're the king that was, but isn't now or whatever. And here we have the king who is, excuse me, and who was, and who is to come. And then we have the seven spirits before his throne. And again, we just mentioned the number seven in connection with creation and uh, talked about as being complete. Listen to this. There's a, um, should have a footnote saying, or the sevenfold spirit. And this is a reference to Isaiah chapter 11. And 
thoughtlessness. As a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, from his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. Did you hear that? How many spirits is that? I thought it was one spirit. Seven spirits? What? It's the spirit. And then you go through all these things, and it's because the uh, Holy Spirit of God is not flat and one-dimensional. And so this is a way of saying the whole, the fullness of all the Spirit of God is there before him uh, and before his throne. And he says, and, so this is from, from God the Father and from the Spirit and from, verse 5, from Jesus Christ. And how is Jesus described? As the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. There's more, but let's stop for a moment. Pause here. Jesus is depicted as the one who is the faithful witness, who came proclaiming in word and deed about the kingdom of God. And he didn't give up. And he didn't give in. And there were times when he was tempted and he stayed faithful. And there were times when he was persecuted, even to death. And he stayed faithful. Jesus is the faithful witness. Also the firstborn from the dead. That yes, he was persecuted even to death. But death did not end Jesus. That he was raised to life again, and it says he's the firstborn from the dead because he's not the only one who's going to be raised to life. In fact, all his followers will be raised as well. And then he's described as the ruler of the kings of the earth. That he is the one with actual authority over all the other authorities that we have set up. This is how Jesus is introduced to us. But then it goes on and makes it more personal. It says, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. This is John Uh, chapter 15, the night before Jesus goes to the cross, he says, greater love has no one than this, to to lay down one's life for one's friends. That this is what Jesus said he was going to do. That the Romans did not take his life, but he gave his life for us. This is how we know how much he loves us. And so it says, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, And more than that, continuing in verse 6, and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. So Jesus has freed us from our sins. And that we celebrate, right? But what about that next part? What is it that he's also done? He has made us to be a kingdom and priests. This goes all the way back to the Old Testament again, where in Exodus, this is as God brings his people out of slavery in Egypt, and then on Mount Sinai, talks about how he's making them a kingdom of priests, that their whole role as a nation is to be a representative role to the whole earth, that it is through the people of Israel that the people who are not of Israel will come to know the God of Israel. Does that make sense? That the priestly role is one 
uh, where you are representing, as a priest, you are representing God before the people. You see this, uh, Moses is a mediator. Uh, we see with him, also with his brother Aaron, kind of the whole priestly line there. But even before that with Moses, as the one who represents God to the people. And so he goes up on the mountain and uh, speaks with God, and he comes back and he's like, this is what God says. This is who God is. This is how you are to live as his people. And then the people mess up again and again and again. And Moses goes back up to the mountain and he talks to God and he says, please forgive them. (laughs) Don't wipe them out. I know they deserve it. And so he's representing the people before God. He's representing God before the people. This is what the priestly role is all about. This is what the whole nation of Israel was supposed to be, was this kingdom of priests to the whole world. And yet when Jesus comes on the scene, what is it that he's preaching? He doesn't say, repent for the kingdom of Israel is at hand. Although a lot of people tended to hear it that way. He doesn't say the kingdom of Israel is at hand. He says the kingdom of God is at hand. This is a much bigger thing than the, um, than the nation of Israel, than the people of Israel. Now this is just the people of God. And whatever nation they find themselves in, whatever ethnic group they find themselves in, all who follow Jesus as their true king are part of this kingdom of God. And not only that, but they have been made of this kingdom of priests, those who represent God to the people. And so that in our lives, if we are following Jesus, we are to be those who are representing God before the people. How is it that God described himself again and again and again? It's gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. We are supposed to be representing him to the world. Letting them know the God who has revealed himself in Jesus. And then we are also supposed to be those who are representing the people to God. Which is exactly why we're supposed to be those who are praying for our enemies. And praying for those who persecute us. Because Jesus is the one who has loved us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. It says amen, but we're not done. We continue verse 7. And it says, look, he is coming with the clouds. Any idea what that means? He's coming with the clouds. Here's, this is a fun game to play. Um, we used to play this more when my kids were little. Um, but it's the game I invented just called Name 10. And it's where you pick something that shows up in the Bible somewhere. And then you just see if you can come up with 10 places that the Bible mentions that. It's a fascinating game to play because you start seeing connections between things that maybe you didn't see before. Do this with clouds. It's crazy. So you look Try to think back every story you've ever heard from the Bible, everything you've ever read from the Bible, everything that you know that is in the Bible. Where do clouds show up? Where are those mentioned? That's a lot more places than maybe um, you realize. 
but they always seem to indicate the presence of God. And in Daniel chapter 7, we have an amazing um, time that we have clouds show up. And this is in this vision that Daniel has of all these beasts that are ruling over and trampling the people and as representations of how this is just how people tend to rule. This is why Jesus tells uh, his disciples, you're not to use your authority. You don't lord it over people as the Gentiles do. But that's what kind of the, the earthly way, the worldly way is is you get power and then you make everybody else suffer. That's, um, and so these beasts are just devouring the people. But then, verse 13, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign, and sovereign power. All nations and people of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. And so we have this son of man, somebody who looks like they are human, coming with the clouds, indicating the very presence of God. And it is this God-man who is given authority and power over all the nations. And so in John, this is what, or so in Revelation, this is what John is telling us, making this connection with Daniel 7 to Jesus and saying, look, he is coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. This is a reference straight back to Zechariah 12, but in a way in which, and we'll see this a lot through Revelation, in a way in which um, in Zechariah 12, it was a, uh, a prophecy that related specifically to the people of Israel that now is global. It's a worldwide kind of thing. And all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. Uh, there's some fascinating details with Zechariah 12 we don't have time to get into. But I'll tell you this, that basically what this is saying is that we will all see how we have been in the wrong. That everybody, when they're, you see Jesus face to face, there is nobody who goes, yeah, yeah, I lived up to that. We will all see how we've been in the wrong. And there will be a mourning for everyone, and it will either be a mourning of our own sin and a uh, a repentance and a way of um, trusting in Jesus that leads to praise and worship of Him, or it will be a mourning of uh, sorrow because we have rejected Him, and we now realize that we are in the wrong for that. But so shall it be. Amen. And I know we said amen again, but we're still not finished. One more verse. Verse 8, where he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is present, who was past, and who is to come, future, the Almighty. This Alpha and the Omega, you probably already know this. It's the first letter of the Greek alphabet, the last letter of the Greek alphabet. This is just a way of saying that he is the first and the last. He is the beginning and the end. And therefore, he is giving, like, it is God who gives meaning to everything from beginning to end. 
if we remember that, if we just remember that, that he is the beginning and he is the end and therefore gives meaning to everything, meaning and purpose to everything, that alone ought to change how we live. But then when it comes to the end, it says the one who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. The Almighty. That's really all that is, the compound word. And that he is the one who is all-powerful. That no matter what, what else or who else claims power and authority, all of those are under the sovereign rule of the one and true all-powerful God. Yet who has revealed himself to us in Jesus. This is how this letter begins. This letter that was to the people of the day and yet is also for us if we have ears to hear. That when you have people who are sitting there thinking, is it worth it? Things are getting hard. I feel like I'm getting squeezed out by this Roman Empire. Is it worth it to still follow Jesus? And John says, remember who he is. Remember what he has done for you. Remember not only what has happened in the past and what is happening in the present, but also what is going to happen in the future. Remember that he is the one that gives life and purpose and meaning to everything. Not Rome. There will be an end at some point to the kingdom of Rome, not to the kingdom of God. Or when people are feeling like, is it worth it? There are so many other things that it seems like this world has to offer that I'm having to say no to because I'm trying to follow Jesus. Is it worth it? He says, remember who Jesus is and what he has done for you, what he is doing and what he has promised he will do. All of those things will come to an end. Jesus won't. And so for those of us who aren't living 2,000 years ago in the Roman Empire, but may face similar hardships, difficulties when it comes to following Jesus in ways that puts us at odds with those around us, or when we find ourselves tempted by the things of this world, the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, the day-in and day-out distractions from that which really matters? The answer is the same. Remember who he is. Remember what he has done, what he is doing, and what he has promised he will do. Remember that all of the things that are causing us trouble or that are tempting us away are all temporary. That what remains is God's love for us in Jesus Christ. And with this, may we be encouraged, may we have hope, may we be blessed. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.